Hello and welcome to Beneath the Beabub, the conservation and communities podcast from JAMA International. I'm Gordon Buchanan. In this series, I want to bring you stories of hope and radical ideas for solving some of the critical problems facing wildlife on our planet before it's too late. As we've heard in previous episodes of this series, there are many forces at work when it comes to supporting communities in developing sustainable use models. These need to work for them and protect the wildlife they share their lives, histories and cultures with. Then there is the challenge of scale and of reshaping some of the misconceptions that exist in the global conservation community. So today we're asking how can we get to a point where conservation matters and feels meaningful and relevant to everyone in the world? How can wildlife be safeguarded and valued whilst the dignity and rights of people are respected? Shane Mahoney is an internationally recognised wildlife expert and conservation advocate. He is founder and president of Canadian Enterprise Conservation Visions. He also sits on a number of national and international boards and unions. In short though, Shane is a Newfoundlander, most in love with wild and non-human things. To find out what that means, join us as we talk conservation beneath the baobab. Shane, thank you for joining me. I am a, a fellow Islander. I grew up on the west coast of, of Scotland, but the island that you're from is a little bit larger than the one that I come from. The island of Newfoundland is about the 16th largest in the world, I believe. It's a pretty substantial island, 43,000 square miles in extent and a very wild and rugged and beautiful place. Yeah, I did a quick Google Google search. Uh, I knew where Newfoundland was, but I didn't realize that it was quite as big as that. Bigger than bigger than the United Kingdom, but I noticed on Google Maps there's an absence of of roads. There's really kind of one main road, it seems, uh, with a few offshoots. The settlement pattern around the island was, of course, very much coastal because the the raison d'être for the European settlement, at least, of the island was the fish, the codfish in particular, and so all of the settlements are, are like diamonds, you know sparkling a brooch uh, all around the island and are positioned as close to the water as possible and as close to accessible fishing grounds as possible. This made it extraordinarily difficult because there are many, many hundreds of these communities. It was very difficult to build roads to all of those communities. And so up until really about the 1950s or so, The vast majority of those communities did not have major road connections with one another necessarily or with other parts of the island. And even today, there are still a small number of communities that are without any road connection to the outside. Mm -hmm. And so they maintain what was the traditional lifestyle of the past three or four centuries where people basically made their way by boat from community to community, etc., So still to this day, even though the road system has considerably improved, it's still a a meandering process to get Mm -hmm. to the many different communities that we have. Yeah, even as I suppose the west coast of of Scotland is still fairly remote in a kind of British context, but historically these were seafaring people 
they moved around by by boat. There's of there's drovers roads, but people generally didn't move over over land. And Newfoundland, that's that's you know it's all this non-native culture in North America. And I get the impression I've never been, but I've met lots of people for, or a few people from Newfoundland. There's something seems to be something other about. Newfoundland is that sort of entrenched in the culture and certainly your life experience of growing up there. I think I think this idea that you've articulated that there's something other occurring here is absolutely true. It is a very wild and rugged place, and it's one of those spaces in the world that looks its best in wild weather, in wind and fog and rain. It has a unique assemblage of wildlife, and of course has seas around it that historically teamed and even today are extraordinarily rich in wildlife, whales, seals, fishes, etc. It imparts to the people who were born and raised and who have lived here, first of all, a sense of incurable identity, I call it. (laughs) It also develops a longing for certain kinds of expressions in terms of humor, in terms of outdoor engagement, and understanding of the natural environment that goes very, very deep. And as a result of this, you know, we have a great sense of a unique culture that lives its life in a very unique relationship with the natural world. And I really think, uh, Gordon, that in part, this is what makes it so easy for me to understand the aspirations of other cultures. Uh, elsewhere in the world that are directly tied with nature in some direct and formidable way. Because the principles of need, the principles of balance and engagement, the principles of expectation and prediction, and the fateful reactions to the things we can't control, I think, uh, come easily to cultures that are closely associated with Mm -hmm. nature and are not insulated from it. Yeah, well, I think all too often in life we talk about the, the the differences that we have with other cultures and other communities. But as a as a global community, and I think for me, I've I've, I've travelled a lot over the last thirty years. You know, the more I travel, the more I see that we're not just more alike than it seems. That we're just we're just another one of these animals that inhabits this planet i don't see us being any different to you know any other species that sort of you know won that hard hard won game of of evolution across this millennia if we were able to embrace this and articulate it and develop it within the policies and approaches of conventions and rules of law and so on i personally feel we would be a great deal better off i have never really believed in any difference between us and other species. We have certain unique capacities, but all species have unique capacities. There are so many extraordinary things that other species express Mm -hmm. that it would be helpful for us to recognize not only that we are in one sense the same as them, but of course to also fundamentally recognize, explicitly recognize that we rely on the natural environment in exactly the same way they do. Mm-hmm. We need air, we need water, we need food, we need you know, shelter. We have to live within the limits of the environment. And I think if we were to understand this similarity between ourselves and the others, we would be much more likely to understand the direct dependency that we have on the natural world. And we have to take it, Gordon, out of this space of intellectualism 
and make it really something that people feel, you know, that they recognize, that they identify with. It cannot be simply an ideological platform for academics or professionals, you know, or people like me who have made their living or careers doing this kind of thing. It really needs to be, you know, a fundamental animalistic understanding of this relationship with nature. Mm. Yeah, we, we as a species, we put ourselves on our own pedestal and view ourselves as being this of gold standard of evolution. But through making wildlife documentaries across the years, I just marvel at the intelligence in the design of certain certain animals. We always think of sort of intelligence and sort of you know what's going on in our brains, but there's real intelligence in the way that not only the things that animals can do, but how they how they live and how they're perfectly suited to that that environment. I suppose we are sort of set ourselves aside because we've spread a lot further across the globe than lots of lots of other other species. Growing up in a fairly wild part of of the country myself, it was all about being outdoors. I knew that there was no way I didn't want to be in an office. I was just wondering kind of when you were in your formative years, how did you see your life panning out? Was conservation always of one of your desires and ambitions? I don't think, of course, in the earliest years that conservation was, but what was very clear to me was that I never wanted to be separated from animals. You know, I don't dislike people, but I love animals, and in the very general sense, all of them. And my experiences as a boy, living amongst them and with them, and having, I'm sure just like you, absolutely total freedom, to explore the outdoors and to and to engage in very dangerous play near cliff edges and in near, near, you know crashing waves and all of the kinds of things that happen in those environments it just tied me to them in a way that made them so natural to be around and so there was never any doubt in my life that I would go on to do things that involved animals but i ended up working in the field of conservation mm-hmm working, of course, to ensure, first of all, that wild things always remain with us. But I also never lost for a moment this tangible, explicit, very deep appreciation that the human communities that were dependent on nature were essentially just another community of animals that were making their way. Mm -hmm. And this meant for me that I could not as easily separate my thinking and my writing, my books or articles or lectures, whatever. I could not separate that into components that talked about wildlife sort of exclusively because I always felt that we had to talk about wildlife either as embracing humanity or as humanity, wildlife, as some sort of amalgam. I couldn't treat them as two independent entities. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons that I have had a certain level of discomfort with the notion of uh, biodiversity. I understand the very well-intentioned reasons as to why it was coined, but in some kind of subliminal way, it, it seems to me to break us apart. You know, there's humans... And then there's biodiversity. And I never liked that because we cannot simply see ourselves as shepherds and custodians and 
having dominion over, even if it's a benevolent dominion. We, we can't see it uh, only up to that threshold and really understand how we are going to safeguard the natural world and wildlife. Because ultimately, we have to understand that we have to safeguard the systems of the planet, Gordon. It is the interacting systems of the planet, the natural systems of the planet, not just the lands or the oceans, but the, you know, the soil circulation systems, the, the, the weather circulation systems, you know, all of the interacting patterns of the planet are what we must ultimately preserve. I really see the human nature continuum as the vital conceptual construct that the world has to adopt. Yeah, that, that's an interesting take on it, because in this podcast, we've talked a lot about communities, rural communities um, in, in Africa a lot, but also the, the global community. And I suppose what, what you're saying is that that global community isn't just made up of human beings, it's communities of animals living in the wild parts of the world. Can you tell me a little bit about conservation visions? And I'll point out it's plural visions. How did you come to set that up? And what is the goal of Conservation Visions? Well, before having Conservation Visions, I had a long career within government as a research scientist. And I you know, did the normal things of establishing population surveys and quotas and for hunting purposes, but also for looking at environmental impacts on wildlife and so on. And so I had the experience of, of looking at all of this through the eyes of a regulator, so to speak, but also I had an institute at the university which allowed me to you know, heavily engage in very exciting field research for a quarter of a century. When I left government, um, I wanted to step out of something that was regulatory and bureaucratized and develop something that could speak emotively to what I held to be uh, the most important views towards nature and to be able to speak emotively to other people in a way that hopefully would encourage them to become more involved in conservation or just more concerned for the natural world. In the end, I called it conservation visions. And you're quite right. It is plural and it's deliberately so plural. Because I don't think that we can expect that any one individual, any one human being, any one government, you know, any one nation, any one community can have sufficient breadth of understanding of the complexities of the natural world globally can get all of the answers right. And we live in such a rapidly changing world with deterioration in natural systems, loss of species, the climate change issue that we are trying to grapple with that we must be prepared to adjust and change our views of what is most acceptable. People hold very strong views about their own place and what they should be able to do within the natural world and how they should be able to benefit. While those various views lead to tensions, Gordon, and cause much debate and consume much intellectual energy, they are real. They're fundamental. They cannot be done away with. What we have to do is to find enough commonalities in those many visions to do the right things for the natural world, very often against timetables that are not in our favor, such as for the extinction of individual species or the loss of particular habitats or the degradation of particular habitats 
and the loss and degradation of the values and importance of the diverse human communities we have in this world. My mission is to create a world where wildlife matters, where conservation and citizenry are united, but that it's, it's a core part of our ideas of citizens of any country, any country in the world, that conservation must be one of the values that we absolutely stand for, and a world where uh, the safeguarding of nature embraces seamlessly the idea of the safeguarding of human cultural diversity and expression. Yeah, I think there's this view that conservation, particularly, I suppose, in in urban settings, that conservation is about the preservation of habitats and species, full stop, and that there shouldn't be any kind of exploitation, or not exploitation, but sort of even sustainable use of these living resources. But you're a well-known supporter of using these sustainable wildlife resources um, as a positive force for conservation. And you obviously see the importance that it, it plays in cultures around the world. So can you give me some examples of that, of the use of, of living resources where you live? Absolutely. I am also in support, I would point out, of sustainable use activities because we have no alternative. All of us are utilizing nature, Gordon, in one form or another. I have seen with my own eyes, both in my cultural background but also in my research, many examples of where the fact that we are utilizing a resource incentivizes us to do the right thing to ensure that that resource is kept. Locally, inshore Newfoundland fishermen, which were tied very, very closely to the fish stocks around our coast, of course, for centuries and still to this day, are outspoken advocates for the conservation of that resource. Not because they are saints, not because they are perfect human beings, but because they understand that their own livelihoods and the, and the opportunities for their children and their grandchildren and their own communities where their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents are buried, that the only way to sustain these communities is to make sure that the resources they depend upon are sustainably and not unsustainably utilized. It is a very clear equation in the minds of people who live close to resources, and this is borne out with many of the histories of indigenous and tribal peoples in North America and around the world. Let's imagine that we did not utilize many of the species that we currently do through, you know, recreational harvesting, through hunting and angling and, and, and fisheries and so on. Does anyone really believe that we today would have the mass of scientific information mm. that we have accumulated over decades and in some cases over centuries to monitor, to count, to assess the viability of, to understand the ecology of those populations of all those species. If we were not utilizing many of those species, and it's not just wildlife, but timber, spe you know, forestry and so on and so forth, we would not have been motivated to launch these massive scientific investigations and accumulate in an ongoing, consistent way this kind of research. 
And so here is another broad-scale example of how utilitarianism, the utilization of nature, the respectful legal utilization of nature, can benefit all species because of the understandings that we have developed of ecosystems and species interactions. Both Canada and the United States, at about 1880 to the year 2000, they were literally, or year 1900, they were literally in a space of losing vast, vast amounts of wildlife in the two countries. The circumstances facing common species today, such as pronghorn antelope or elk or wild turkey or black bear or Canada geese, you know, well-known species that everybody can identify, was so severe that they would have been classified as endangered at that time had we had an Endangered Species Act. It is a very clear history to show that their recovery, their maintenance, their monitoring, the research of them, and the sustainable utilization of them were all intimately and deeply connected. And so we have a clear example at the continental level of how sustainable use of resources can lead to major conservation progress. And you have to remember that along the way, we benefited so many people, so many communities. In the United States alone, 600,000 jobs annually are created in rural places. Is this to say we don't have problems with lots of these things? Of course not. You know, conservation is the most complicated business in the world. It's the interface of politics and human greed and human desire, cultural motivations and law and economics. And so we are never going to have it perfect. But certainly one of the main drivers that can be successful for conservation is to develop incentivized programs that rely on the fact that people utilize and are dependent upon resources for their own sustenance and for their own economies and for the benefits of their own families and their own communities. Mm-hmm. It is, it's interesting hearing you saying that from the furthest reaches of, of Canada, but what you're saying, the essence of it is true for the, the, the entire planet. There is a misconception in the, in the global north that of conservation and communities aren't part of the same, the same thing, and they really are. You know, all living things are, are shaped by their environment, by the landscape. You've obviously been shaped by the landscape that you grew up in. And I suppose people living in towns and cities in the United Kingdom, certainly, they're shaped by their own landscape. What do you feel is the biggest misconception that people living in those urban environments have about conservation worldwide? Well, first of all, I mean, I I think it is true that it's possible to develop a dichotomous proposition, I suppose, that people living very close to nature in rural circumstances and those living in urban settings can develop, you know, quite different views of things. I mean, at some level, that's kind of in quotation marks, natural, it's, it's, it's what happens. But I will say that there are often diversity of views, you know, within rural communities and within urban communities as well. But what I do think it's fair to say is that there can develop uh, attitudes and values in distant places, which feel that the activities undertaken by people in another part of the world should simply not be allowed. And 
This very often, of course, occurs with those individuals who feel that way, actually having very little insight to the practicalities and the realities of the of the existences and the lives of the people who are utilizing those resources in ways that some of these distant communities don't want to see. But of course, they're not living with the leopards, are they? Uh, they're not living with the elephants, are they? They're not living with the lions or the wolves or the grizzly bears or whatever the particular case might be. And so it's easy enough to say, hands off and just let's all live in harmony, you know, and the, the lamb will lie down with the lion. But there is a real need for the world to recognize that two things have to happen to advance community-based conservation, justice-delivered uh, conservation, rights-based kinds of conservation approaches. One is that we have to find ways to, to empower and lift the voices of those smaller communities and organizations who obviously will not have the same kind of wealth and capacity you know, to reach big audiences as some of these very well-established larger urban entities and distant entities in the world. So we have to find ways to assist in capacity building and, and the uplifting of their voices and the exposure of the realities of their lives. And at the same time, however, we can't simply just do that. We have to work on emphasizing and clarifying for people who hold these views that activities they don't engage themselves are wrong or perhaps should not be undertaken by other people. We have to educate them to understand the realities of existences. You know, it is easy for a European body to decide, for example, that markets for seal products should be ended and not think about the fact that the rural Newfoundlanders who have lived and worked and consumed and eaten and used the fur and the meat and the oil from those animals and built an industry around it which provided livelihoods, that those people are still living with now somewhere around 9 million of these seals. And despite everyone recognizing that there's no conservation threat, there is no desire or no measurable desire on the part of the European Union to change this particular view. Mm -hmm. So with your sort of tenacity and with your optimism, what are your hopes for the future of this planet in terms of conservation and moving, moving forward with, with your visions? You know, I, I remain optimistic for several reasons. Deep down, humanity senses a kinship with other wild things. We see this manifested in many ways. We see it manifested in the in the deep emotional attachments, the love that develops between human beings and animals that they live closely with, such as the pets we have in our home. And I believe a lot of people feel this. I do believe this is one of the reasons that we can have hope, because we are seeing in the world today a rising empathy for animals, a rising empathy for wildlife. And that, to me, is an incredibly good thing. Some people in the sustainable use world worry about this, but I think the more people who actually care about wildlife at any level renders a better world than having fewer people who care. The second thing is, 
we have to realize that our scientific understandings of our relationships with nature and of the interrelationships with nature, of the importance of productive oceans, of the ideas of preserving soil, of the notions of how we must struggle to create sufficient food resources to offset terrible, terrible, terrible circumstances for humanity. All of these kinds of awarenesses may not be front and center every single day, but they have now become part of the cloud of information landing upon human beings everywhere. Thirdly, we are beginning to see some of the really, truly drastic consequences of excessive use or abuse of the natural world. It takes time to accumulate those, that kind of evidence. It takes time to, to communicate it. I think this amalgam of new knowledge, the amalgam of nature-based economies, all of these things give me hope. Shane, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful. Uh, thank you very much. It has been so fascinating to hear about the unique perspective Shane had as a result of growing up embedded in and connected with nature. By focusing on the needs of wildlife and communities rather than the organisations that exist to protect it, perhaps we can be more reflective, more emotional as conservationists. This conversation, maybe more than any, has definitely given me something to think about. I hope that everyone has taken something from this podcast and everyone has enjoyed listening to it as much as I had recording it. If you'd like to find out more about Conservation Visions, you can find the links in the show notes or just visit the website jamainternational.com to explore more fantastic, inspirational, international projects. If you'd like to listen to our next episode, make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favourite app. JAMA International are passionate about conservation and well-being for people and planet and know it's crucial to open positive dialogues and share ideas. If you'd like to share this